Today we will be continuing our Rooted series, and our passage is Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child, will, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Nate. If I haven't met you yet, good to be with you. Uh, just like one housekeeping note, next week... Uh, we, are, we have a guest preacher uh, named Noel who's coming out from Lansing, and he's actually the Acts 29 Midwest director. And uh, if you struggle with beard envy, you may not want to be here because he has a pretty remarkable beard. I'll just put it that way. Um, that being said, just want to just encourage you, um, as you always are, but just, you know, warmly welcome. No booing. Just, you know, no... I know you won't. That's, that's not in the notes. But um, that being said, uh, he's here because tonight... Um, my wife and I fly out for our redo of our 20th anniversary, which was in 2020, and that didn't happen because, you know. Um, so we'll be in Portugal for a week, and we're really excited about that. But before we get on the plane, we got this passage here. And by the way, it's not Christmas, okay? I know the, the text was read, and you're like, wait, is it December? It's warm outside? Uh, we are doing this series through the Apostles' Creed. And um, if you've been with us, let me just put it this way, kind of the why behind it. Uh, in, in 1961, Vince Lombardi walked into training camp, and there was about three dozen Packers there, and he held up a pigskin, and he said these words, gentlemen, this is a football. And just a few months prior, they had come within minutes of winning the championship, but had fallen short. And yet, Lombardi had the audacity and wisdom to start at the beginning. He wanted them to master the fundamentals. They literally opened up the playbook and started from page one. You could put it this way, our series Rooted, in which we are unpacking the Apostles' Creed, is really the opening of the playbook from page one. You know, the history of the creed is that new converts, as early as the third century, would memorize and recite this creed and pledge their allegiance to it. For in it, in this short, concise statement, it would unpack who God is and the story of the gospel. You know, Lombardi's approach in 1961 
paid off. You know, six months later, uh, they won and defeated the New York Giants 37 to nothing. But of course, you all know that. You live in Wisconsin. But it's in the Apostles' Creed where we go back to the fundamentals. And Ben Myers, one of the authors of, of a book on the creeds, puts it this way. In discipleship, the one who makes the most progress is the one who remains at the beginning. So whether you are here and you're exploring the Christian faith, or maybe you're returning to the Christian faith, or maybe you're a seasoned Christian, you've been around the block a number of years, let me put it this way, this series is for each of us. And today, we continue with the person of Christ. Last week, we noted this, that the person of Christ is like the hub of the wheel. It's the center, it's the core of the creed. And we'll be here for a number of weeks on who Jesus is. And, and Ben Myers noted this last week, I said this, he said, this is, Jesus is not an idea, excuse me, Christ, Christianity is not an idea, it's not a theory, it's not a vision of life, but it's a person. It's the person of Jesus. And this week we look at the incarnation, the, the enfleshment of the Son. And the statement is this, I believe in Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So three things this morning. We're going to see the rationality of the virgin birth, the meaning of the virgin birth, and then lastly, responding to the virgin birth. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, this morning, we, um, we ask you for your help. Would you take this part and would you weave it and work it into our lives and would it cause us to trust you? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the, the, the rationality of the virgin birth. Um, Luke's account opens with an angel appearing to a teenager in a rural town in a rural part of Galilee, announcing that she's going to conceive. And in verse 34, Mary's response to this news is this. How will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, how will this be because I have not been with a man? Mary understands biology. And the angel responds with these words, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the language here is, is not to be pressed with kind of any sort of sexual illusion, but rather the same spirit which was present at the original part of creation, a part of the triune God's work of creating life out of nothing, is now uniquely creating human life in the womb of Mary. And I know we live in Madison, and some of you are like, Really? You know, um, years ago, there's a pastor named Harry Fosdick, who's an influential 20th century pastor in New York City. He once proclaimed this. He said this, I do not believe in the virgin birth and hope that none of you do. Uh, Larry King, when asked if he could report, or excuse me, interview anyone from history, he said, Jesus. And then when he was asked what he would ask Jesus, 
Here's what Larry King said. He said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. And then he said these words, the answer to that question would define history for me. So what are we to do with our modern ears in the face of a culture of skepticism as it relates to this news of a virgin birth? Well, there's two things our passage offers us related to the rationality. And the first is in verse 36. Look at what it says. The angel, after announcing to Mary that she'll be, be, um, get pregnant, she, he says this in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. The angel announces this. She says, you know your relative. You know her. She's well past childbearing age. She's had no children. And right now, as I'm here with you, it's been six months, and she's pregnant. So the rationality of the angel's response is simply this. If God can bring life out of your barren relative, then how much more can he certainly do this in your situation? In other words, can God do this? He is doing this. And what's interesting about this particular aspect is that God bringing life in the midst of a barren woman is actually a common theme in Scripture. In fact, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's one of the great turning points throughout Scripture. Think for a moment. In the wake of the fallout of sin in Genesis 3, God's work of rescuing the world it begins with a promise to a couple who can't yet have kids, Abraham and Sarah. And they're told, here's the promise, your family is going to be great. It's, from your line is going to come someone who's going to bless all the nations. And then years later, 25 years later, after the promise, Isaac is born. In the age of the judges, think of Samson. He's one of the most well-known judges. His parents couldn't conceive. And an angel shows up and what do you know? God provides a deliverer for God's people. And then in the age of the prophets, think of the beginning of 1 Samuel. It all starts with Hannah, a woman who is emotionally undone that she can't bear children, and she prays, and God answers. And from her comes Samuel, the one who's known as the kingmaker. And he's the one to anoint the first kings of Israel. It's like this. In short, when you get to the Gospel of Luke and you see two women at the beginning of the Gospel who shouldn't be able to have kids, you should almost have your ears open for this is how God works. One who is well past childbearing age and one and then hasn't had any kids and a teenager in a rural town who hasn't been with a man. This is how God always turns and works in history. Ben Myers notes this, at the great turning points of history, we find a woman pregnant and an infant child brought into the world by the powerful promise of God. You know, perhaps one of the reasons why we can be skeptical of this account of the virgin birth is because we really are not familiar with God's story. Is any wonder that this is how he's going to bring about 
his life into this world? But the second reason is given by the angel in verse 37. It's real simple. The angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. You know, at first glance, it's, it's, it's absolutely reasonable, right? Does it not? Of course, the virgin birth is possible if the Almighty God exists, if He wants to make it happen, if He's the one who spoke and created 350,000 species of beetles, if He's the one who spoke and created the well over 100 billion galaxies. Let's be rational. Is this too hard for God? Could God do this? The angel's rational, reasonable response to Mary and to us is yes. But let me add one more. Did it happen? Did this happen? And let me go back for a moment to the opening of Luke's gospel. It's a prologue. And listen to how Luke opens his gospel. He writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concern that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke opens his gospel, and he is asserting he is not writing fiction. He has talked with eyewitnesses. He has followed up on accounts, and he's writing a man, Theophilus, who more than likely, commentators note, is the one who's the benefactor, enabling him to write this gospel. And he's writing that you may have certainty with the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke is saying, this happened. You know, Richard Dawkins has said that faith is the blind trust in the absence of evidence. But let me tell you this, this is not blind trust. This is not blind trust. As one of my pastor friends has put, this is informed conviction and belief because of the evidence. It is rooted in an event. See, the rationality of the virgin birth, two questions, could God do this? The answer is yes. Did God do this? The text is clear, yes. It's reasonable. But what about the meaning? What do we learn about the meaning of the virgin birth? And let me put it this way. What we see in this passage is that the long-awaited king is here who will be the agent of God's new creation breaking into the world. That's what we see. You know, um, the arrival of the king. Um, a, couple, um, a couple weeks ago, one of my friends, excuse me, one of my kids' friends, went out to see the latest Mar Marvel movie, Doctor Strange 2. And... Um, my, my daughter was lamenting that she was going to go see it because she hadn't seen four to six of the other movies before it. And she was like, you're going to go see this movie and you're not going to understand what's going on. Why? Because there's so much more of the storyline. As we put ourselves in Luke 1, it's important to remember that there is a storyline that precedes this. 
Around 1,000 B.C., God had made a promise, a covenant to an earlier King David. And we read this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 16. It says this, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes a promise, a covenant that a king will come from David's line and that his kingdom will reign forever. And we step back into Luke 1 and we read this about this baby to be born to Mary. Look at verse 31. It says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We see the mean of the virgin birth is this, that the long and winding road of God's promises are being fulfilled. That this promise of a long-awaited king who would bring about God's reign is right now in Mary's womb. And his name is Jesus, and it means God saves. Well, what will this king do? What will he bring about? In verse, in verse 30, it speaks about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and commentators know that this echoes Genesis 1-2, where we read this, The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In other words, in the beginning, the Spirit of God was bringing life out of nothing, order out of chaos, and now we see another work, another creative work. God is added again in the first act of creation. God created Adam, and from Adam came sin and death. But in this new work of creation, he brings about a second Adam who will bring about life out of death, forgiveness out of sin. It's a new beginning. It's a new start. One more thing. In verse 32, it says this, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Later in verse 35, it says he's the Son of God. And commentators note that these are divine titles. We saw last week in Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. In John 14, Jesus would say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And this means that this one to be born is fully, fully God. But not just that, not just that. He's, he's fully man. To be fully man means he nursed. He cried in service, right? It means he went through awkward teenage years. Jesus completely identifies with us, fully God and fully man. And the book of Hebrews says this about the reason why. It says, it says this, therefore he had to be made like his brothers 
in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You see, the long-awaited king did not come to defeat the armies of Rome, the oppressors at the time. He came to defeat that which underpins all evil, our selfishness and our sin, through taking on himself the penalty of our sin through his death. And therefore, the enfleshment of the eternal son was absolutely essential so he could stand in your place and my place. In other words, in order for God to get rid of evil in this world and not get rid of us, it meant he, the Son, had to take on our flesh. And it's through faith in him that this new creation breaks into your life and my life to be brought out from sin and death to everlasting life. Well, how do we respond to this news? Look at how Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me submit to you, Mary responds in at least three ways that are a guide for us. Um, The first is just in general, she just responds in trust. I said this earlier, but despite knowing biology, Mary knew her God. And she simply trusted his word more than her eyes could see. And think about this for a moment. We may look at her and go, man, she's just naive. She's a teenager in a rural town with little to no education or status than probably any of us here. But the simple rule in scripture, as Ben Meyer notes, is this. The meaning of history is not power and empire, but promise and trust. You know, oftentimes in our current moment, over various cultural matters, someone will say these words, you are on the wrong side of history. Right? But consider this. If the scriptures are true, and Jesus is the hero, he is the long-awaited king who is the agent of God's new creation in the cosmos, then it beckons us to trust him, to rely on him. And listen, if you're not a Christian... This is not an ancillary thing. This is not peripheral. This is actually the very heartbeat of the gospel that God put on flesh to die in your place. Will you trust him? Will you rely on him? But secondly, Mary responds with just this incredible amount of humility. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I just think for a moment, uh, this news completely altered Mary's life. 
When she got this news, she didn't know if Joseph was going to stick with her. Uh, When she got this news, her reputation was completely undone in her small rural village. Do you realize how hard this news made her life? In the years to come, think about the things that it would mean for her. This news, as one author noted, completely rewrote the script of her life. And yet she responds, not with, God, this is really going to be problematic for me. I've got plans. I've got a clear path for my life. I've got plans. I've got hopes. I've got dreams. She responds with, it's not about me. Do you realize how much dissonance there is to our current moment that says you do you? A proper response, a a proper rendering to this news of the enfleshment of the Son is rather one of responding with, I am your servant. We simply offer our lives to this King. It is not about us. It is about Him. And that flips the script. Let me put it this way. There is meaning in the mundane. Um, one pastor, Pastor Aswine, puts it this way about being a servant. It says, servants give their days to small, mostly overlooked tasks over long periods of time with no accolade. Small, mostly overlooked tasks over long periods of time with no accolades. Think about what this would mean if we'd live this out in our community. Uh, Simply put, like think about our city group life. It just means to learn to love one another. Those who are working out this faith. Being family with one another. It it means, you know, in, in some measure... Showing up on a Sunday, and instead of thinking primarily, what am I going to get out of this, but rather looking around and saying, what are the needs of this community? It means, think about this, in your neighborhood, or in your office, or in your classroom, it means living among people who don't yet know Christ, and living out with intentionality. I was talking yesterday with uh, a Christian who 15 years ago moved into a neighborhood in another part of the city and just on a hyper-local level has just lived out his faith by serving his neighbors, by getting to know his neighbors, by doing an annual Christmas gathering and buying the whole neighborhood And he said, everyone brings a gift, but it's a poem, or it's a song, or it's a story. And most are not Christian. It was interesting. Then he shared this. He said, recently, a couple people came up to him, and they obviously know he's a Christian. And they begin to share 
about really hard encounters with the church. And they're not Christians. But do you see what's happened? The mundane is meaningful. It's the simple things. It's the point of us living intentionally in this context in which others around actually begin to entrust their lives to us. The enfleshment of God, it, it, it rewrites the script of our lives. It's no, longer, it's no longer about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's rather responding with this, simply, I am your servant. One more thing. And it's actually not in this passage, but I couldn't leave it out. A few lines down, it's the Magnifica. It's Mary's song. Read it maybe tonight, but it begins with this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The rest of the song is God accomplishing his promises and subverting the dominant paradigm of the day. It's a revolution, but not in our way, but in God's way. And Mary's response is one of joyful participation. Or let me put it this way into your life for a moment. Where is it hard right now? Where is it hard? What relationships are hard? What, what ails you? You know, when I think back to that locker room with the Packers and them starting from playbook, you know, one and going through the fundamentals of football, you know, they would have done things like learning how to block all over again and it would have been really weird. You know, like, I'm a professional, I know how to do this, but going through these very, very fundamental things and then, but guess what happens when you do that? When it becomes game time, you don't have to think about it, do you? And see, this is what it means right now. Where is life hard right now for you? This is game time. Because if this is true, if the enfleshment of the Son has happened, he's taken on the flesh and taken on your sin, then this is what is true right now in your moment. Regardless of your circumstances, it's these two things. God is for you, and God is with you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, we give you thanks for this news that you have come in the person of Jesus, and you've taken on flesh. Father, help us to work this out in our lives. Whether we're hurting this morning and suffering, help us to respond in a trust that goes beyond our eyes that can see. Lord, help us to flip the script in our lives where it's not about us, but it is about you. And in the, in the mundane of our lives, would we walk with a trust and obedience that would look to you and say simply, I am your servant. And we pray all this to your name. Amen.